as the days get shorter and the temperatures drop across North America and Europe. On this episode of The Reenactor's Corner, we discuss the pros and cons of reenacting in the fall and talk about what kind of kit you should be thinking about taking with you to those autumnal events. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. Hello, everybody. Before we get started, I uh, wanted to thank everybody who supports us via Patreon with an extra special thanks to our newest Patreon supporter, William. Um, Glad to have you on board. Thanks to everyone who uh, helps keep this thing going. Thank you, William. Welcome to the club. So for today's episode, we are going to be talking about what the best season is for reenacting and why is it the fall? Well, let's jump right into it. It does actually feel like fall now, and uh, I am actually truly enjoying it. Um, Chris has accused me of being a lizard person before in that I like the summer, Um, but uh, specifically I've realized of late that I like, you know, the early summer, like, you know, around the summer solstice, but uh, I'm actually very much... uh, very contented with this uh with this period of the year you know it's uh the weather's getting nice and crisp i can actually wear my cool jackets now and uh i'm looking forward to events i think that the reason why i like fall the best for reenacting specifically is just i find the temperature range to be so ideally suited for the types of clothing and uniform items that we usually wear for reenacting I mean, I showed up at Chris's mansion today wearing a wool felbluza and a rain cape of sorts. So I think that kind of speaks to that, you know? (laughs) I know we've talked about this before, but, um, you know, it's a reality that continental Europe has a different climate than than North America does, certainly a different climate than where uh, we live here in New England. And, you know, generally speaking, um, certainly Northern Europe, it's generally cooler in the summertime, usually most places than it is here. Um, the, the wool uniform that was kind of intended as sort of a year round daily service uniform for, uh, German soldiers in world war two, it's really pretty uncomfortable on the hottest days of the summer here. So, um, once the weather cools down, kind of gives more of an opportunity to wear that stuff and feel comfortable. I feel like we've rattled off this fact to it on the podcast beforehand, but uh, Chris, didn't you determine that Boston, which is near where we live, is at the same sort of geographic latitude as Rome? It is near the same latitude as Rome, and uh, you know, b- even beyond the latitude thing, obviously there are, um, I'm not like a climatologist, right, but there are differences that are based on how water flows in the ocean and elevation and all that you know stuff. yeah 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 but still i mean i think that's kind of telling you know um right it is that you know german soldiers during world war ii who were stationed in italy in the summer months were given uh some of them were given tropical uniforms to wear yeah um because yeah it's just you know wool uh, the, the heavy wool uniform really is, it's for, I mean, for me, it's just too hot in the summertime, but, yeah. um, 
once the weather starts to get a little bit colder, it can be uh, perfect. And in fact, on cold, on cool or cold fall nights, you really kind of want that warmth of the totally. water if you're sleeping outside. Totally. You know, yeah, wool is a very sort of insulative material. And uh, yeah, I. This is a bit of a tangent here, but uh, I recall when I first got into reenacting, actually, we're going on, I think this month, we're going on a decade. Like, Chris, I've been doing this for 10 years. That's great, Ben. Congratulations. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I I remember it's kind of nebulous, the exact sort of chain of thoughts that led me to settle on, you know, reenacting World War II German and then later, of course, Soviet and other things. But um, I wanted to buy some sort of like a old military uniform, like a wool one, and wear it out in the woods in the fall. Yeah, I think there's something very evocative about, you know, the sort of... Uh, autumnal New England scenery and, you know, the color field gray. Yeah, like when we think about like old time New England or when we as New Englanders think about history and we think about pilgrims, for example, we're like picturing them in the fall, right? In uh, November, yeah. um, Thanksgiving time, you know, uh, I don't know, just thinking back on it does. I, there is something about the fall um that kind of makes one think about the past. I don't really understand why that is exactly. We talked about this in a previous episode, but, um, you know, somebody made a lovely Facebook post about just how different times of year evoke different historical periods. And I think Chris and I both agreed that, you know, reenacting, you know, in a field gray wool uniform was sort of synonymous with the autumn here in New England. Sure. And spring is cool for reenacting too, yeah. but spring you don't have the the beautiful colors of the leaves. Um, spring feels different to me. Spring feels different. I feel like by that point you're kind of maybe a little bit sick of the cold, you know. Like just let's get over with this, you know. Also too, like you know, it's cool seeing the leaves change color, and then I really enjoy the sort of stark beauty of like November and December, where all the leaves have fallen, but no snows have come yet. And it's just, it's, everything just looks very sort of stark and bold. And, uh, yeah, I enjoy that. If we look at the food items that, uh, World War II German soldiers ate, like what they were issued as rations, the bulk of their daily ration usually came in the form of like a stew and fall is just <laughs> the best for eating stew. I mean, w winter is good too, but like a, a crisp uh, fall evening and a hearty stew is like a great combination. I've heard it called soup season, you know, it's, and there's truth in that. Sure. Um, you know, thinking about the weather in the fall, um, one thing that I really like about it is, is that it can be so variable where you can have sometimes in the same, in the course of the same weekend, you can have really warm temperatures, like where you could go swimming outside. Yeah. And then you can have cold temperatures where you might be wearing an overcoat and maybe it could even snow. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I think I, I, I went swimming in Aug in October of last year, you know? But uh, also, too, I was also wearing overcoats. So, yeah, I find that very sort of true to my own experience. Um, and, of course, for sleeping outside, I just love the autumn where, um, you know, it can be kind of cool when it's time to get in the tent and get ready to go to sleep. Um, and then at night, you know, the temperature can, can drop. So you kind of snuggle up in your blanket. Maybe you have... Uh, 
a heater of some kind in the tent, even if it's just a lantern or something like that. And uh, it can just be ideal sleeping weather. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know me. I'm a lizard dude. I get cold easily. So I like... I like sleeping sleeping out in the summer, but then you you do have the bugs to contend with, and uh, no bugs. No nope. bugs is huge. Yeah, and I, I just I love taking uh, reenactment photos in the fall, especially around where we live and in the areas where we do the reenactment stuff the most, where we're in the forests and there's outcroppings of stone or stone walls and the fallen leaves and. Um, you know, soldiers in their overcoats. I think it just makes for a really cool, leaves a really cool visual impression. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's wonderfully atmospheric. Like the summertime where you've got your mosquito net on and you're sweating, that that has its own sure. visual impact. But I don't think it's, you know, I, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, appeal to me as much. I mean, I don't know. I am a lizard, so I, I enjoy the mosquito net sort of photos. But yeah, I mean, I agree. It's... You don't really want to be outside, you know, and also too, like, you don't necessarily look cool wearing, you know, shorts, um, like, and I know HBT uniforms are all right, you know, those like breathe pretty good, but still, I, I feel like it's, it's uncomfortable to be outside, especially in the heat waves that we got this past summer. Well, also like when you're an office worker and you spend all day under a fluorescent light and now it's the weekend and it's time to do a reenactment and you're wearing a short sleeve shirt and shorts and your pasty flesh is seeing the sun for the first time that season. It's like not very convincing that you've been living out there for weeks, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, I realize that, you know, this is, it's difficult to get uh, everything 100% right, you know, but uh, we are enthusiasts of history, but, you know, we aren't, like, living as they did back then. Right, not all the time. Yeah, not all the time, at least. Um, think about some of the... Uh, one of the things that's great about the fall is that there's often so many different events to do. Um, you know, where where we live, Ben, we haven't really been doing very much lately in the summertime, uh, whereas in the fall, there have been some years, some pre-pandemic years, where we were doing an event every two weeks for like two and a half months. Well, I mean, Chris, we've talked about this before, but it's almost sort of policy that we take the summers off. <laughs> yeah, certainly now, um, you know, if there was a great summer event to consider, I would I would love to do it. Um, but there's not much for us locally that gets scheduled in the summer, which I kind of understand. I mean, a lot of people are away on vacation with their families. The rhythms of their lives are different because they have kids and the kids aren't going to school or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I have done events in the summertime, but I feel like the number of actual summer events that I've done in my time as a reenactor has been very fleeting compared to, you know, like fall events. Like fall is the season. We've talked about this, dude. This is um, this is kind of the start of our season, if you will, you know? Sure. Um, let's, you know, let's think about some of those events. Like uh, there's that event that happens at the beginning of September. It's actually the weekend after Labor Day every year in Odessa, New York. That's one that I've been to so many times. And for me, for a long time, that was kind of the sort of... Uh, 
I don't know, ceremonial or symbolic beginning of the fall, you know, whereas for a lot of people, it's Labor Day weekend. For me, it was always the weekend after Labor Day, because there were very many times that I would go to this event and, you know, need a fire to be warm at night or uh, be wearing my wool uniform for the first time since the spring, wear my overcoat sometimes even depending on uh, what the weather can be like. So, um, you know, it always really kind of felt like the the transition between summer and fall was very much palpable at that particular event. I mean, I have a very distinct memory of one Odessa that we did in which I think we legitimately experienced the transition from summer to fall um, where we got there and it was like 80 degrees and it was super hot to sleep. And, you know, we were all wearing our HBTs and by the time it was over, you know, we were, we were wearing wool. It was cold out at night. You know, we were there for, I think like three or four nights, you know, it was like one of the longer duration Odessa's I think I've done. It might've been a five night thing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I remember the event that you're talking about where you get there and it was temperatures were at or near 90 degrees. Yep. It was absolutely the summertime, you know, the the insects, the smell of the the dead grass, you know, really yeah. felt like August. And then the last day or two, it was foggy, rainy, temperatures, you know, in the 50s or whatever. And the leaves are changing color and you're ready to go home and uh, carve a jack-o'-lantern and eat <laughs> apple cider donuts. <laughs> uh, where's the lie? Yeah, I think we went swimming at that one too on the, you know, the first early hot days in that lovely pond they have there. I have I usually uh, go swimming at that event every time that I go, even if the temperature is cold, just because it it's just so refreshing after like a tactical to be able to take a dip in some cool or cold water and just rinse rinse the sweat off, rinse the grime off. And, Where's the lie? And feel refreshed, you know. Where indeed is the lie? Another event that unfortunately hasn't happened since COVID that we used to do, Ben, was the uh, annual Eastern Front tactical that took place in Stamford, Vermont, that we attended uh, in September every year. Yeah, that was a good time. Uh, that was, wasn't that the event where uh, I nearly uh, murdered that guy with a stick grenade? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Re- refresh my memory. You, oh, yeah, you, you came around the corner and yeah, you were yeah, like I, wielding it like a club. Look, I was like going to try to throw a stick grenade at I think some like Soviet partisans, uh, and I was like sneaking up around a corner, and then this other I think partisan reenactor was coming perpendicular to me along the same the side of the same sort of structure or building, and we we met uh, at the corner itself, and uh, you know this this guy was shorter in stature than myself, and I'm six one. And, uh, you know, I was going to throw this M24 stick grenade, but I like, I reared up and I had the, the stick grenade in my hand and it, it, it looked like I was going to club this, this poor young man to death with this, uh, replica stick grenade, you know? And, uh, I mean, according to people who saw it from, you know, from a distance, it just, it looked very funny. I really missed that event. The site was really <laughs> cool. It was like, um... It was a really, really dense forest, but not the kind of dense forest that we often have around here where it's dense with thorns and brambles and brush and you can't even make your way through. It was, Man, just it was like, cleared out. Yeah, yeah. it was. But it, the, the number of trees there were very large and the spacing between the trees was not a lot. But there was like no understory, you know, so it was just um, 
you know, the forest floor, lots of stone outcrops, which is, you know, common here, uh, bedrock exposed by the glacier, or big boulders deposited by the glacier when it receded. And, um, and then the, these big trees and it would be dark in the forest, you know, even during the day. Yeah. And then at night it was absolutely, you couldn't see your hand. In yeah. It was spooky. There. It was spooky. And especially autumn when, you know, the, the feel of the forest in autumn is, I think, such an inherently sort of spooky yeah. atmosphere. I mean, uh, those of us who've grown up in the USA, I'm sure we all know, you know, kind of Halloween and um, trick-or-treating and uh, Halloween decorations and, you know, ghosts and black cats. And of course, just like growing up, uh, watching all the cartoons about Halloween and um, the legend of Spooky Hollow and the Headless Horseman and Spooky Hollow. Oh, what is it? Sleepy, Sleepy Hollow. Hollow. Yeah, <laughs> feels spooky. Um, I mean, look. I and know. so that, we kind of like have that in our minds a little bit yeah. when we go into the forest in in October. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I know our viewers are probably sort of varying degrees. They're of, listeners, Ben. Listeners, thank you, Chris. Listeners are varying degrees of uh, sort of spiritual, but you know, I, I do feel like if you know if there are spirits, uh, this is the time in which you know there is the the the, the this is the sort of spookiest time of year. You know, the, the sort of most spiritual time of year. Uh, it's the time of the harvest. You know, it's uh, it's uh, the fall. The fall is good. The fall is great here. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure some people would suggest that like. Christmas is the most spiritual time of the year, but of course it's going to be different for everybody. Right? Yeah, true, true. But true, uh, true. certainly October, I think, is the spookiest time of the year. Yes. And so, you know, it can be, we, we had some uh, night missions at that Stanford, Vermont, Eastern Front tactical that were like pretty, pretty frightening, you know, just being in um, this sort of uh, dense, I mean, look, it was dense. It was what I would regard as a wilderness area. I'm sure if you were to look at an aerial photograph of the area where this event took place, you could probably zoom out and see that you, you could walk for miles and miles through the woods without ever coming to a town or anything like that. This is the, I guess it's, it's so close. It's in Vermont, but it's so close to Massachusetts that if you got lost, you could, uh, you could find yourself in Massachusetts. Yeah. It's on like the line, the state line between, and it's, that's a, it's a very sort of sparsely populated area and you know? it's beautiful too. It's up in, I think that's the Berkshires, right? Uh, yeah. I think it's like, you know, close to the Berkshires or the start of the Berkshires or whatever. Well, our friend Chris Billy talks about this a lot. Uh, it's so easy to just disappear into, uh, yeah, the dark woods, you know, like at night. And at that Stanford, Vermont site, you could absolutely disappear, get lost. You know, we did an event once um, fighting against the Soviets and the main body of the Soviets got lost and spent the entire day lost in the woods and trying they were lost to get in back. The daytime. <laughs> yeah, in the daytime. <laughs> they were like firing. I think they were like firing like warning shots to try to like find each other, you know. Like, Meanwhile, we thought that the there was like fighting or battle action taking place in some no. far flung, you know, region of the property. <laughs> they were just lost. <laughs> they were shooting into the woods to try to, you know, shooting into Establish the air contact, to try to yeah. Yeah, signal yeah. to someone else where they were. <laughs> My favorite event at that site uh was the one where I think it was you, me, and uh, Bauman, who's another guy from our crew, were the only people who showed up. And um, we spent the entire event uh, hiding from the Soviets who showed up in significantly greater force. 
Now, normally, this was like a weird fluke. Like, normally there were more Germans there, but, like, we were the only Germans for whatever reason, and they were... Yeah, the, the total number of German participants at the event that year was three or four, yeah. right? It was like... Yeah, and so we ended up just hiding literally under a rock. There was this, like, large boulder that had, like, kind of like a hollow under it, and we took turns on watch, and I just remember, like, staring up at the sky and, uh, like, going through the contents of the pockets in my Felbluza, and like the boredom was real um but like also too we were trying to evade detection and so you know when you're on watch you're just like staring off into this like early autumn forest you know trying to discern movement in the trees and then quite realistically we were ambushed uh by some partisans at the very end you know like i i, I I remember I was on watch and I was thinking like, oh my God, wouldn't it be so funny if we like, you know, were able to stay out here until night, you know, and then we like proudly could come back to camp and like brag to the Soviets that we like evaded detection. And I think just as I was thinking that, you know, like I heard gunfire behind me and of course it was the partisans. And I they got totally us. respect that they really spent all day seriously looking for us and then did in fact find us at the end of the day uh, where we had been hiding under the rock for the entire event. <laughs> You know? Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it was, was cool. Good for them. I mean, I like maybe this is like an idea for a scenario like if if there is a sort of inequity in participants, you know, I think we we said that we were like maybe survivors who had been caught behind the lines after a major enemy push and we were trying to make it back to our lines, you know, that was our sort of Yeah, we were going to hide all day and then at night try to make more progress in making our way through the the Soviet lines. Yeah, so it was it was realistic, you know, just like stay in hiding till nightfall if you can and then make it back and of course we didn't make it. So, yeah. But I I fondly remember that. Another event that we've done in autumn uh, ben is the uh, American Heritage Museum battle for the airfield mm. um, public display event that happens on Columbus Day weekend every year. Mm. And that's been going on for, I don't know, what, 10 years now or maybe even more than that? Yeah, I mean, I remember the first one I did was 2013, so, yeah. And that wasn't the first and one, And that wasn't right? the first one they did. So, the, yeah, at least 10 years that's been running, and that's probably the most uh, well-attended reenactment event in our region each year. It is a public um, event, meaning spectators come. The spectators pay 20 or $25 or whatever it is to attend, and they get to kind of go through the camps and talk to the reenactors, and then twice a day there is a big... Uh, spectacle uh, public battle thing that happens where they use um, tanks and anti-aircraft cannons and you know the the big guns come out and the, some of the museum equipment gets used and the reenactor owned stuff gets used and it's a big show that everybody I've seems to like i've definitely had some good times at that event you know I, I i definitely like to see all my friends at that event and uh, it is too i i find that, like the I mean, it's different year to year, but the second weekend of October, I find, is often sort of the peak of autumnal foliage around here. And so it, it and the weather is, is fine. You know, it's the perfect weather for wearing wools. So, yeah, I, uh, I definitely uh, have enjoyed that event in the past. Yeah, the weather is often really nice. You know, the quintessential fall New England weather where it's, uh, you know, no humidity, extremely comfortable temperatures, a nice breeze, 
perfect sleeping weather at night. And, and like you say, Ben, uh, there is uh, that one side of the property is bordered by a river and there's like trees along the river and on the other side of the river as well. And uh, those trees can be so beautiful when they're in their full autumn, colorful mode, yeah. which they, they have been at this event in the past. Uh, you know, it can, it can be very, uh, very appealing. Yeah, definitely an aesthetic appeal, appeal there. And of course, with so many reenactors attending, like you say, it is fun to just go there and be able to say hi to your friends, but sometimes people that you haven't seen since the spring or maybe people you only see once a year. So that, yeah. that's cool as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely an appeal, that event. Of course, for us every year, the big, the big annual uh, autumn event is the Easter Front Tactical that happens the weekend, the, the second to last weekend in October every year in Haydenville, Massachusetts. Sure. And I, I am looking forward to Haydenville this year. I think it's going to be a really good time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, it's such a beautiful property. I mean, again, it's sort of out in western Massachusetts, which is fairly sparsely populated, you know. And um, it's like 100 people there last year, right? I think it was like 80 or something over 80 people, which was the largest turnout that that event has ever uh, yielded, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, it's as regional tacticals go. I mean, it's not the biggest event you'll ever go to, but it's 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 big for the region and it, it feels like a big deal. Well, and... it's, it's the longest running private event. It's the longest running private event in New England. It's the longest running World War II event in New England, as far as I'm aware. That's great. Overall. And... Uh, you know, it's at the site where we um, have our uh, bunkers that we've been buildings, and you know the uh, the people who live on the property, the landowner uh, and his family. We have like a great relationship with them; they are friends. And being that it's an Eastern Front tactical, our our German unit will be there. The Soviet unit that Ben and I are members of locally also will be there. They're also our friends. So it's like a big sort of a reunion. We get to see lots of people that we know, lots of people that we like and are eager to hang out with. So it's it's definitely super fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the sort of big uh, jamboree aspect of it. You know, just uh, it'll, it'll be good to see some some friendly faces. To me, that is absolutely the quintessential autumn event because by that time, you're either, you know, you're you're at peak foliage or you're you're a little bit past peak foliage and so the forest is just like bright yellow and orange um and brown and it's absolutely gorgeous i remember um distinctly there was uh i think they were doing an assault and they were trying to mask the advance with uh with smoke grenades and so the forest was full of white smoke and then there were these yellow and red leaves that were just, you know, coming down from the trees, you know, as the wind picked up. And it was just, it was, it was, it was kind of surreal. It was almost sort of cinematic uh, to to behold. But uh, yeah, um, that event is just gorgeous, especially at that time of year. I mean, that whole part of the country is absolutely just gorgeous. I know people come from, I mean. People come from out of states to see, you know, that the, the the leaves change in New England. So I think we were truly fortunate and uh, blessed to have this in our backyard, essentially. Yeah, I do lose sight of that sometimes. That where we live is like a vacation destination in the fall from people outside this region. But, yeah, um, it is so beautiful, and uh, it's just so nice to be outside and 
in that kind of scenery and that kind of setting with that kind of weather. It's like, to me, that's unbeatable. Yeah, I was on a walk last night and I was wearing a jacket, you know, not last night, last yesterday evening. And I was like looking at the, the leaves, you know, and it's just, I'm like, wow, this is actually really pretty. The, um, by the time that that event rolls around and it's late in October, it definitely does get cold at night. And there's usually some frost on the ground in the morning when we wake up and you do get to use your kind of cold weather gear. You know, you get to wear your heavy overcoat, the gloves, the knit items, a sweater underneath your field blouse, you know, and uh, practically every reenactor certainly around here has all of that stuff, but your opportunities to use it are, are usually pretty limited. So it's nice to be able to break out the, the cold weather stuff, the cold weather sleeping gear, the second blanket or the third or the fourth blanket or whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely worn my overcoat in, you know, like May or September weather, you know. I feel like it definitely, at night is warranted then, but uh, or at, at least for sleeping. But I feel like I definitely break out my toque and my gloves uh, and, uh, you know, the rest of my sort of cold weather item sweaters and such at Haydenville. That's sort of when that all gets debuted. And so, yeah, it's it's exciting. We're 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 coming up on that time of year. It's sweater weather. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we usually have to heat the tent at night um, in order to make it kind of more uh, bearable for sleeping. Um, you know, we are uh, as we've I'm sure discussed before on this podcast. You know, you kind of acclimate to sleeping in a climate controlled environment, and then even though it might not get super cold. At night, it might only go down to 40 degrees. I mean, if you're not kind of bundled up or you don't have any heat source at all, it can really feel like you're freezing. Also, too, um, we lay straw down. I feel like sometimes we maybe do it at Odessa, but I feel like Haydenville is uh, kind of the first uh, event of the season where we like lay straw down, really. Yeah, definitely having a thick layer of straw in the tent when you're sleeping in cold temperatures. We've done we've done it at Odessa. I think we've done it. we've definitely done it at the September Odessa. But uh, I mean, I've I've had a, I've probably slept on straw in like basically every every uh, month of the year over over the years. Um, but w- in the summertime, in warm weather, the straw is basically there for just comfort. Where yeah. it's like uh, it's a little softer. Laying on a bed of fluffed up straw can be a lot more comfortable than laying on the hard earth. Mm. But in the cold weather, um, you really kind of need that for warmth because if you're just laying directly on the ground, the mass of the planet Earth will just suck the heat right out of you. Whereas if you are on something that has some some air in it, like fluffed up straw or or pine boughs or whatever you know, forest debris or whatever you've, you're sleeping on, um, then that can be kind of insulative and kind of insulate you from the ground so that you don't have this giant heat sink as much. Yeah, you really understand. I mean, a lot of sort of Boy Scout manuals talk about, you know, gathering up pine boughs or something to put under you. And you really kind of understand why uh, that is sort of necessary um, for comfort or survival even. Um yeah, what what Chris is was getting at. I mean, I remember the last event we did. It was in September. The temperatures at night, I think, were probably like either high forties or low fifties. But I was sleeping basically with 
just a plank under me, and uh, I only really had a, I only had a, a zelpan and a uh, singular thin blanket for warmth, and it, I was, I was, I was cold. I got cold. Sure. Things that are kind of important for me for fall reenacting that I kind of would extend this to. I mean, obviously, extreme cold weather reenacting is its own separate thing that has its own concerns. And I know we've done an epi- episodes on that in the past. But for me, like cool weather reenacting, like the fall, there are certain things that I definitely want to make sure that I have. Like uh, I do want to have my Esbit stove, which is like a small folding solid fuel stove that can be used to heat up a beverage or heat up a can of soup and a mess kit or something like that. Because after a day outside in cool temperatures, I do like to have something warm to to eat to kind of warm me up you know what i mean sure sure it's like a little morale boost to you know and uh i always will bring i'll always make sure that i bring candles or some kind of a lighting source because it does get dark early this time of year and you don't just want to be or i don't just want to be generally in complete darkness for the entirety of of the long period between when the sun goes down and when i go to sleep uh, so I'll bring some kind of light source just for um, for an aid when I'm doing my like regular camp tasks. You know, it, uh, the, a fire can help with that too in situations where you can build a fire. Yeah, of late, Chris, I think both you and I have uh, invested in kerosene lanterns, uh, which uh, are definitely a godsend around this time of year. Sure, and then also. Um, you know, I really have to pay attention to my sleep system, especially if the temperature is going to go down below about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. That's where I run into the risk of not being able to sleep at night because I'm too cold or, you know, waking up and my feet hurt because they're, my toes are frozen or whatever it is. So I usually will bring two wool blankets, maybe even three wool blankets in some settings, like late in autumn. Um, and I also bring an uh, extra spare pair of clean heavy wool socks and when I go to sleep I'll take my boots off and I'll put those heavy wool socks on you know sometimes over the socks I've been wearing all day or maybe I'll wear foot wraps during the day and then at night I'll put on the thick heavy wool socks and that is just such like a game changer for cold weather sleeping for me. I often bring a second uh, sort of set of long underwear that I will sort of take off my wool trousers and put on the second set of wool of of long johns over the first and then put the wool trousers back on and i find that to help a lot but uh, something that you've alluded to before chris uh, i'm sure if you slept outside every single night as world war ii soldiers did the cold temperature might not bother you as much or you might have acclimatized uh you know as the because obviously you know like it doesn't all of a sudden uh, go from being 70 degrees at night to 40 degrees um, there's a there's a sort of gradual transition and if you were you know sleeping outside uh, over the course of that transition I'm sure you'd probably acclimatize but uh, unfortunately you know we we are enthusiasts who do, this, who do this on the weekends and we have our you know cozy beds at home and so, it is a bit of it. I think it is a bit more of a shock uh, to the average person who isn't doing this sort of every day. You know, I saw a YouTube video today from like a bushcraft guy, and it was tips on how to be comfortable sleeping 
under a tarp with a wool blanket for bedding. And one of the really interesting points that he made that I hadn't really thought very much about before, and of course, um, probably some people listening to this will think, well, how, how could you not think about this? But I just, I never really gave it much consideration was that he put it together like kind of like a theoretical uh, range just for the sake of explaining this, of uh, where, uh, imagine if it worked that where at, at zero degrees, you froze to death and at a hundred degrees, you were like, you know, it was super hot. Of course, that's not, that's not how it really works, right? But just if we, if we get, look at this zero to a hundred scale, just for the sake of this, and he's saying, okay, so let's say um, before you go to sleep, you're, you're right by the fire, you get the fire raging, you are, are ensconced in all of this wool, and you're like getting so warm, you're like near a hundred degrees, and you feel absolutely extremely cozy, and now it's time to go to bed. And the fire inevitably goes out, and the temperature drops, and it goes down to 50 degrees. We wake up, you're too cold, you're freezing, you're shivering, you've got to get the fire going again. Um, whereas if, if on that day, instead of getting up near 100 degrees before you went to sleep, if you just built a small fire, warmed up a little bit, got to around 50 degrees on this theoretical scale, and then you go to sleep and the temperature drops to 40 or 30, even 30, um, you know, you're, you're not going to feel as cold because you didn't start off so warm. And, uh, you know, that's something that I think is uh, really kind of interesting to think about. It's something that can definitely come into play uh, in the autumn, I think, even more than in the winter where um, you can have autumn days that have almost summer-like temperatures and then it does get very cold at night. I mean, sure. I feel like we've definitely gotten some 80-degree days in October, uh, you know, especially in recent years. But uh, no, those are words to live by, Chris. Like you uh, mentioned earlier about sweater weather, like autumn is the reenactment time when the sweater kind of really like comes into its own as like a, a crux garment. You know, I do wear it in the wintertime too as an extra insulative layer underneath my field blouse, but um, it could just be really nice to just sort of uh, shed the field blouse and just sort of uh, wear the wool trousers, the service shirt, and then the wool the knit sweater for like daily tasks can be yeah. really comfortable. Yeah, I agree on that. I strongly agree on that. And then, of course, as we go into November, there there really isn't like a an annual event that we do in November. But usually, I think in the past few years, I know we've done some immersion events at our bunker site. Um, which is just absolutely ravishingly beautiful in November. Um, and of course, there might be other reenactment opportunities that we could try to capitalize on. I certainly want to make sure to do some like camping type stuff, whether or not we do a formal event or not. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'll be able to make it this particular year, you know, my schedule uh, as it is. But uh, I know the World War One Newville event is in November. They do it, you know, around about the anniversary of uh, the armistice. And so I've heard that's really cool. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, I feel like I commented on the sort of stark beauty of November earlier. But uh, yeah, it's I'm hoping to do some sort of some sort of reenacting in, you know, November after Haydenville this year. It's one of those events that you can't really describe it. You sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually in Normandy. I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage. But I do think that there is room to grow. 
A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a really nice refresh to get back out there. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. So we're recording this early in October, and this episode will be coming out on October 6th. The next episode after this is going to air on October 20th, which is the last episode we're going to release before Halloween comes out. And so as has become a sort of a tradition, we are going to do a horror stories of reenacting episode. Uh, I can't wait for this. These are my favorite to do. Seriously, these are, these are my favorite uh, episodes to record. <laughs> They're some of our most listened to episodes as well, looking at the downloads over time. Ben, you and I, I can think about what kind of s- stories that we might have that range from uh, spooky forest uh, campfire ghost stories to just uh, the horror stories of the kind of disasters and misfortunes that can happen. Um, I'm excited. I, I am very excited for this. In addition to our stories, we are going to be putting out um, a a call for uh, listeners to chime in with their horror stories. Uh, would love to hear stories about uh, haunted reenactments that you did. Would love to hear stories about encountering Sasquatch in the woods or uh, would love to hear stories about the time that you drove into a lake or whatever other <laughs> uh, misfortune type horror stories that you have to share. So um, there's a few different ways that you can get those stories to us. Um, I'm going to be making some posts on social media. So if you follow us on Facebook, you'll see this. Um, you can uh, send us a message on Facebook. You can send us an email at uh, the reenactors corner at gmail.com. And you can either write up your story and Ben or I will read it. Or you can actually record yourself um, telling your horror story of reenacting. And then we can include that in the episode in your voice. So you can kind of be on the show. So um, I'll have some instructions about that. If you, um, you know, check the Facebook or, uh, shoot us an email if you have questions about that. Cool. I'm, I'm, I am very excited for this, Chris. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of this episode. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks again to all the Patreon supporters, to Ben and everybody else out there. I'll see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how happy or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month. As ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us here again at The Reenactors Corner.